the text before us. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here because we want to celebrate the work that You have done in us because of Christ. For everything we have, everything we love, everything we treasure finds its essence in Him. For apart from Him, we would be without hope. Or without any satisfaction, be lost and miserable. And so in light of the salvation that we've received... We want to know how we can live lives of worship, live according to the way that you've designed us, and frankly, and, and particularly as a church, to know how to be the church as you've designed it. Lord, we're not playing here. We don't want to just be mechanical or religious in our approach to worship. God, we sing songs because we mean them. Lord, we want, to, we want to be all that you've called us to be. So even as we read this chapter on the church, on the spiritual gifts, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes to deepen our awareness, our understanding that the church and its functioning would become, uh, in, a, in a greater way, more real than even it is now. And again, all of that can only be accomplished by your Spirit. But help us to be the bride that you desire us to be. And not just our church, but the church universal. And help us to do our best to reach the lost around us and throughout the world. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So chapter 12 marks a transition in... Paul's letter here to discussing the nature of spiritual gifts. And this appears to be the fourth issue that the Corinthians had asked Paul about in a letter that he had previously sent to them. 
The first issue he responded to was that concerning marriage, which he addressed in chapter 7. And the second was food that had been sacrificed to idols, which he clarified in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. And then thirdly, he addressed the traditions in the worship service, uh, particularly head coverings and then the practice of the Lord's table. And then finally, here, he comes in chapter 12 to addressing spiritual gifts. Now, the word spiritual gifts is the word, um, the, the, the fourth word that you see there, spiritual gifts, is the word in Greek, pneumatikon. And it's a, in and of itself, it just means spiritual. It's translated spiritual gifts, but it just describes something that is spiritual in nature. Paul used the term earlier in chapter 2 when he said, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So that word spiritual truth is the same word, pneumaticon. And then in chapter three of Ephes- chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places. There it's referring to spiritual blessings. So it's often translated spiritual gifts, as the English Standard Version does um, here. But it really could, the, the reason they translate it that way is because that's the context of what Paul's talking about. Clearly, he goes from here to describe the spiritual gifts. But if this word is referring to spiritual gifts, it's strange that Paul uses, would use one word here, pneumaticone, and then later in verse 4, use the typical word for spiritual gifts, which is charismata. And a few scholars have pointed out that this word pneumaticone, spiritual, might be referring to those who considered themselves more spiritual than other Corinthians. That We'd already talked about there's been divisions within the church And some might have figured that they were more spiritual than others because they had more miraculous gifts. They demonstrated more spiritual power in the the gifts that that God had given them. And this is persuasive, particularly because of what Paul says in chapter 14, just a few verses later, chapter later, chapters later, I suppose, in verse 37. And he says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual... He should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. So it could be that he's referring to just truly spiritual people. What does it mean to be spiritual? However, it seems to me to make the most sense to run with the most natural translation of the word, which would be spiritual or spiritual things, keeping it general. That is, Paul doesn't want them to be unaware of issues related to the Holy Spirit, the way the Spirit works, in particular, revelation, which he's going to address in the next verse, and spiritual gifts. So he says he doesn't want them to be uninformed about the spiritual. The word uninformed is the word agneo, which is where we get the word agnostic from. It just means to be uninformed. To not have the information. To be ignorant. And the reason for the Corinthians' ignorance that he wants to address, doesn't want them to have, is indicated in verse 2. Until they were saved, they had never received any supernatural revelation from a God. 
Instead, they were led to what Paul describes as mute idols, idols that didn't speak. They would just bring their offerings and uh, sacrifices and hope for the best. But there was no communication happening with their so-called gods, with these mute idols. But now that there are believers um, who have come out of pagan worship, they're told that God speaks to them. God's revealed his truth to them. Through the Holy Spirit, this is a new thing. Now, it wasn't a new thing for the Jews. The Jews had, you know, it's as far back as we can see, even with Adam, God had spoken to them through prophets. God would uh, present his word through prophets. And they'd been receiving this word for a long time. And so it's natural for the Gentiles to want to know how to discern what is from God and what is not. He says in verse 2, You know that you were pagans. You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. He calls them pagans. It's translated pagans. It's the word ta-ethne. Typically it's translated Gentiles or ethnic groups. People who are other than Jewish. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus uses in, when he gives the Great Commission to the disciples. When he says, go into all the nations. Panta ta ethne is the Greek there. Go into all the people groups. It's the same word that's used here. And apparently it's translated pagan because Paul's using it in the past tense. You used to be pagans. You're Gentiles. And so as Gentiles, these Corinthians worshipped idols. They didn't worship the Jewish God for obvious reasons. Instead, they would worship these mute idols. But those idols never spoke to them. And so Paul wants to clarify to them, well, this is how God speaks. This is how you would discern God's truth. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of how, how they can discern what is, if a prophet's from God or if it's a false teacher, a false prophet. So he says in verse 34, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, at first glance, it seems that what Paul is differentiating here is between those who are speaking in the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and those who are speaking by a demon in the worship service. However, it seems unlikely because I think if there was somebody who was in the worship service standing up and saying, cursed be Christ, the Christians would know that's probably not somebody they need to listen to. So what is this situation that he's addressing? I think clarity is found in noting that Paul uses a particularly Jewish word. The word accursed is the word translated from Aramaic, anathema. It's the word Paul uses in Galatians 1.8 when he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And Paul is writing to a primarily Jewish audience in the book of Galatians who had been affected by the Judaizers. That's the particular heresy that he's combating in Galatians. So this word, anathema, is a transliteration from the Septuagint word, harem. And in the, in the Old Testament, the harem was cities that were devoted to destruction. So you remember when we were uh, going through the book of Joshua, God had 
demanded that some of the Canaanite cities that they were going to come across be completely wiped out, devoted to destruction, make them anathema. And so this is a word that had been particularly used by Jews. This is not a Gentile word. These are also the same people who would declare Jesus to be an anathema. Well, why? Well, because the law said that it cursed anathema be anybody who is hung on a tree. Well, Jesus was hung on a tree. This is what Paul addresses in Galatians 3.13. And it's true. Jesus became a curse for us. He shouldn't have been cursed, but he was. He bore our sins on the tree. And that's, of course, why the Jews rejected him. And so, just as Paul told the Galatians, Paul wants the Corinthians to know that if a Jew were to come and claim to be a prophet and yet at the same time undermine the divinity of Christ, that Jew would not be a true prophet. And this is helpful because Gentiles, again, unlike the Jews, weren't aware of prophecy. And so if a Jew were to come into the worship service and say, yeah, I'm a Jew, we're used to prophecy, listen to me. By the way, Jesus isn't really God. That's somebody they should not listen to. It seems to be that's what he's addressing here. So, the Jews were used to worshiping a God who speaks. And so the Gentiles probably wondered, how do we know if this is a Jew, if this Jew isn't a prophet from God? And the answer presented is how they would respond to the question of Jesus. Does he call that, does he call Jesus an anathema? Or does he say Jesus is Lord? Now, Paul, when he says Jesus is Lord, he's not talking about a verbal pronouncement. For Jesus himself says in Matthew 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father in heaven. So here you do have people saying, Jesus, you are Lord, you are Lord. And he says, not everybody who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. So this confession is not just verbal pronouncement. It's a confession from the heart. And I like how the commentator David Garland put it. He says, this confession affirms the majesty of Jesus as the one raised from the dead to become the one universal Lord above all other so-called Lords. It declares absolute allegiance to him and accepts his absolute authority over every aspect of life. And so if one were to come into the worship service claiming to be a prophet and they did that, Paul says, you might want to listen to him. Now he'll get to the distinguishing of spirits later on when he lists the gifts. But that in and of itself means you should give him a hearing. So do they embrace Christ as their Lord? Next, Paul moves from the nature of spiritual revelation to the nature of spiritual gifts themselves. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now these verses tell us a number of things about the gifts. And they're listed there on the screen before you. First, they are designed to impart grace. They're a means of grace. The word again, gifts, is the word charismaton, or the charismata. And that word itself means workings of grace. They're grace gifts. 
And this is the primary word used in the New Testament for spiritual gifts. So it designates these gifts as their, their primary function is to, is to impart grace. They're given to give grace to the church through the gifted members of the body of Christ. Secondly, there are various kinds of gifts. Now, just notice the repetition in verse 4 and 5 and 6. Varieties, varieties, varieties. Mentioned it three times. Paul's trying to make a point. There's not just one or two or just some special ones. There's, they're various. Thirdly, they're distributed by God. God distributes the gifts differently. But what's most important is that these gifts are from him and given for his ends within the church. In other words, it's not about how special the receiver is. This is about how good the giver is and what the giver wants to accomplish with the gifts. Fourthly, it notes that every believer possesses a spiritual gift. This is to each is given. So if you're saved, if you've been born again, you've received a spiritual gift. The fact that every Christian has a spiritual gift seems to suggest, therefore, that probably these gifts are permanent. They're given to you at salvation. However, Paul also later says to desire the greater gifts, which might suggest that maybe you can gain more than one. Maybe you have a multitude of gifts. And maybe as you continue to pursue ministry, those gifts increase, both as an individual, but also probably as a church. As the church is faithful and little, God gives it more so it can be faithful and much. And the fact that he relates these gifted members to the physical body in the next section to explain leads me to assume that there is a sense of permanence in the gifts, right? Each of our body parts has a special purpose. And so that would even suggest that there's going to be, we would recognize that each member has a importance, has a special purpose that doesn't change. And so the members would want to know who was gifted with what gift. That's a question you should be asking. What is so-and-so gifted with? Because God has given them that gift to help me. As he says, fifthly, they're given for the common good. That is, they're not for the individual's glory. They're given, not for the individual to be impressive, but for the church to grow. And this, this truth cannot be underestimated, especially in light of our own culture, that tends to be very individualistic and self-exalting. And I believe this is actually Paul's main point. The gifts are not given to make a person special, but to help the body. They're given for the common good. Now, again, individualism and self-exaltation, that, that tends to be our default mode of thinking. That's the culture we live in. We were talking with McLean's earlier, just a couple hours ago, talking about the culture of Britain. It tends to be a very closed culture. They're not very open um, to having conversations, having people in their homes. And we were talking with them about the differences of, between French culture and American culture. This is our default culture individualism do what you can for yourself but that's not that's not what the gifts are given for it's not about the individual but the body so just imagine that your grandfather left you in his will nothing 
disappointing. Accept a spiritual formula, a spiritual formula, a special formula for a powerful drug. And his only request was that you use this formula to benefit all mankind. So I've discovered this drug. You can make this drug with this formula, but make sure it's not for you. It's for all mankind. And so in your curiosity, you run to your basement laboratory, and after a few months, you're able to create the drug. And you discover that that drug can strengthen the physical power of the human body by ten times. And so you decide, I'm going to take that drug myself. I'm going to use it so that I can be more powerful, so I can be strong. In your lust for power, you ignore your grandfather's request, and you take the drug for yourself so you would stand apart as a superman. But that would not be what your grandfather intended. That's not why he gave you that formula. He gave it for mankind. And we see through 1 Corinthians twelve seven that these gifts are given to individual members, but they belong to the body of Christ. So if you have a spiritual gift, it, does, a gift, it doesn't belong to you. And you do have one if you're a Christian. And it's not yours. It's the body's. Just like when I was serving in the military, the equipment I had did not belong to me. It belonged to the United States military, and they made sure I remembered that. It doesn't belong to them, but it's given to them. So it's not for our personal gain, but for the gain of the church. And just think about that. The same is true if somebody else has a gift. They have that gift for your benefit. It's given they gave, God gave that to them for you. And what a, what a reason to rejoice in one another's giftedness. God has gifted them with those gifts for your benefit. That's awesome. It's not for them, it's for you. You can rejoice in that. In fact, you should take advantage of that. And that's not to say that we as individuals don't receive any benefit from the gifts that are given. Of course we will. What an immense benefit when we get to serve Christ and see him powerfully work through us to change people's lives. When we get to see God do wondrous supernatural ministry. And when we discover this isn't our power. This is from God. God is doing something at work here. We're blessed when God reveals himself to us in the spiritual gifts. God, do you recognize that? God reveals himself in the dispensation of the gifts. Notice what he says. They are given, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The revelation, the revealing of the Spirit, that's what manifestation means. So God reveals his power in the church through the members for the good of the church. And one of the things you might not have you might have noticed, I'm assuming you all noticed, is that in these first few sentences, Paul includes a reference to each member of the Trinity's participation in the giving of the gifts. He's talking about there's varieties of gifts. He mentions that three times, but then he mentions a different member of the Trinity. Now, why would he do that? I mean, he's talking particularly about the Holy Spirit. So why bring in God the Father? Why bring in the Son? Well, I believe it's because it's a kind of tip of the hat to affirming the unity that exists within the Trinity. They're working together in giving gifts to the church. 
They function together. They work together. They're in harmony. They're not each just on their own performing different functions, but they do have different roles. We've talked about that already, but they do it together. It's a unified work. Just as he pointed to the Trinity in relation to marriage in the previous chapter, he's giving an example of how this should work in the church as well. The Trinity is our ultimate example for how this looks. Various functions together for the benefit. So just as the members of the Trinity work together for the benefit of the church, likewise the members of the church should work together for the exaltation of the Trinity. You see that? They work together to give to us, so we should work together to exalt them. And this brings us to verse 8, where he says, And the kinds of gifts of the Holy Spirit. Which says, For to one is given through the Spirit meant the utterance of wisdom. And this begins a list of the gifts that Christ and God and the Spirit have given to the church. Now, I don't believe that the list that he presents here is exhaustive. And there's a number of reasons for that. It could be, but I don't think so. Um, because... There are a number, there are a couple other lists, and I don't think even as a total totality they're exhaustive. The other lists are, uh, uh, there's some more presented in chapter 12, verses 28 to 30. There's some other gifts listed in Romans 12. Um, some would even include Ephesians 4. There's some gifted persons listed there. But I don't think that the, these lists are exhaustive, and then these are the reasons. Because they're not the same lists that are given. Some letters include some gifts that aren't included in other letters. And some gifts are included in both, and some are just included once. And so if it seems that Paul's trying to be exhaustive, there would be consistency across the letters that he writes to different churches. So I don't think they're exhaustive. There may be gifts, I'm I'm assuming here, there may be gifts that aren't listed here at all. And this gives the impression that Paul's not trying to be exhausted. He's just simply listing gifts that come to his mind in his discussions regarding them. Moreover, the lists of gifts are never the main point of these passages. That's why he doesn't describe most of them. Now, he's going to get into a little bit of detail with tongues and prophecy in chapter 14. But for most of the gifts, he just assumes they understand what they are. He doesn't explain them. Because, again, I don't think the gifts are what's important. What Paul cares about isn't the fact that they have the gifts, or even if they know what their gift is, but that they're using those gifts effectively, particularly in loving the other members of the body, recognizing they've been saved for the sake of the body, not just for themselves. So let's look at the first gift that he mentions, the gift of wisdom. It's the word Sophia. And this is a word, of course, the Corinthians were familiar with. And it just refers to the ability to discern a situation rightly, and then rightly apply truth. To understand a situation and know how to respond to that situation in light of that understanding. So a possible reference to this gift might have been when Paul spoke in chapter 2 and said, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So it's this wisdom that was given through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And they would speak this wisdom in contrast with what the Corinthians were impressed by, which was worldly wisdom. So there's a spiritual wisdom that would correspond to what's revealed in the Word of God, and then this worldly wisdom. The next word is similar. It's the word knowledge. Another word the Corinthians were familiar with, it's the word gnosis. It's where we get the term Gnostic from. And it refers to a person who had the ability to understand something clearly. So the Gnostics claimed that they possessed special knowledge or special revelation. And so the spiritual gifts appears to be the ability to understand the scriptures readily. That they just they grasp what's going on there. They can see the arguments clearly. Or it could refer to the ability to retain that understanding. The ability to remember what they've read and apply it to situations when necessary. And I believe the reason Paul starts with wisdom and knowledge is because this is the problem, one of the key problems the Corinthians were facing. Right? He addressed wisdom, particularly earlier in 1 Corinthians, and then in, he addresses knowledge in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So these were things that the Corinthians were really impressed by. But Paul wants to say, you know what, if you're impressed by that, understand where the source of that gift is from. Don't be impressed by the person and say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Be impressed by the giver and understand then the responsibility to use that gift for the building up of the body. Use that gift for the church. And incidentally, we should all pursue knowledge and wisdom. However, it appears that some in the church are going to be particularly gifted in this area. But they were given the spiritual strength, again, to, to assist the rest of us. So if you feel weak in regard to wisdom or feel weak in regard to knowledge, find those who are gifted in that area and rely upon them. Use them joyfully. They would love that if you would. The next gift he mentions is faith. He says, and to another, faith by the same spirit. It's the word pistuo. And it, it refers to faith or belief. But not, not just a kind of a vague belief, but a confidence, a confident certainty, <clears throat> the same sort of faith that we have that saves us, right? Not just, I think Jesus might be able to save me, but no, confidence, such confidence that it's like a treasure in a field that you would um, sell everything you own to go and buy it, that sort of faith. It's the faith that's described in 1 Corinthians 13.2. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that's pretty powerful faith. Or what he says in verse 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these of love. So faith is something that Paul wants to remind them of. It's the same word. I believe this refers to the ability to believe in a promise of God, Despite overwhelming circumstances, this would suggest that having such faith is foolish. To believe in a promise of God when that seems completely irrational. Because the circumstances around you would suggest that's a foolish thing to believe. The kind of faith that Abraham had. In faith, in hope against hope, he believed. 
that God would provide him an heir, even though he was 100 years old and he had never had a son before by Sarah. That kind of faith, miraculous faith, faith in the confident promise of God. Now, we all struggle with faith from time to time. We all have struggles with doubts. And it seems that the person with the gift of faith is supernaturally strengthened to not feel the pressure of faith-shaking circumstances. When other Christians who, are, who have faith, they've been saved, but are struggling, this person has the ability to stand strong amidst those struggles. My mind is drawn, uh, for instance, to John in contrast to Peter when Christ was um, betrayed and handed over to the Jewish officials. Remember, Peter said, I, I would never deny you. But then, of course, he denies Christ three times. But John followed Christ, even entered into the meeting with the Sanhedrin in their council. And then later on, we see him at the foot of the cross. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like John's faith was shaken, like Peter's. He had strong faith. I believe that's what this gift is talking about. The next gift he mentions is the gifts of healing by the one spirit. This refers to the capacity to cause someone to become healed or cured. Now, the Bible mentions many instances of healings taking place in the New Testament. So here's a plethora of them, or I guess just a few of them. There are a plethora. I just picked out a few. Matthew 6, 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Miraculously, they didn't just take out their first aid kit. Talking about a supernatural healing. As Jesus says to the disciples, heal the sick and in it say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And I like how the apostles particularly prayed for this gift when they were in the midst of persecution. Josh pointed out during our elder meeting this week that this Sunday is actually uh, Pentecost Sunday. And... So how fitting that we should be talking about the spiritual gifts that were given, uh, particularly on the day of Pentecost. Well, this is shortly after Pentecost. The, the disciples have gone out and they've preached the gospel, but then the authorities are rising up against them and trying to persecute them. And so they gather together to pray. And there it is. Acts 4. Verse 29, and they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders to perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they pray for these things. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, so... They were given miraculous power to heal. And there's many evidences of this in the New Testament. The next gift he mentions is gift of miracles. The working of miracles. Literally works of power. And like gifts of healing, we have lots of instances of this. In Acts 6.8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In Acts 13, Paul made Elymas, the sorcerer, blind by simply saying, you shall be blind. Then he healed a crippled man at Lystra. In Acts 19.11, it says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, 
so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away by the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I mean, that's works of power. It's the same word that describes what Paul is saying the church has been gifted with. The other gifts, the next gift he mentions is prophecy to another prophecy. Now, there's a lot of confusion regarding this gift. I probably won't answer all of your questions regarding it. But suffice, suffice it to say that it's the capability to utter inspired messages. That is, God reveals his will directly to you, and then that prophet would proclaim that. It's referring to direct revelation received from God. It's not a strong feeling. It's revealed truth. So it's not the sort of thing that's described when somebody says, God put this on my heart. That's not prophecy. That's you having strong feelings about something. No, when prophecy is mentioned in Scripture, God tells the person what to say. In fact, the phrase that I encourage you to look up if you're curious about this is the phrase, say to them. Multiple times in the Bible, God says, say to them. I looked at, there was probably 60 references where God spoke to a prophet and said, those words, say to them and give them a message. And then the prophet would go proclaim that message. That's prophecy. It's not just having a feeling or thinking, you have an inclination that this may be what God wants you to do. That's not prophecy. That's an inclination. It may or may not be true. A prophet, a genuine prophet, has God speaks to them and tells them what to say verbally. Now, not all prophecy had the permanent and universal quality of Scripture. Some people think if a person has prophecy, it's on par with Scripture. That's not the case. Because even in the Old Testament, in fact, actually in the New Testament as well, there were many prophets who spoke things that never got recorded in Scripture. That didn't mean they were false prophets. They just didn't have the same universal quality that the church or Israel should enjoy throughout all time. They were just given for a specific people at a specific, or specific instance, a need to address a need that had come up. So, a couple of examples of those prophecies. Uh, take Saul in 1 Samuel 10.10. 10. After Saul was anointed as a king, it says, When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets... The people said to one another, who has come over from the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So Saul becomes a prophet. But there's other prophets there too. Now those are not prophets that are mentioned in scripture. They're just called the prophets. But there's no indication that these are false prophets. Just because their words weren't recorded. They just, it was not of the same general um, and permanent quality that scripture has. But still prophecy. Or you can think of the prophecy uh, by Agabus that's mentioned in Acts 21.8. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And then right after that it mentions Agabus as well, who comes and visits. But these daughters prophesied. Now, did their prophecies become scripture? No. But that doesn't mean that they were false prophets. It seems to indicate that they were genuine prophets. So, often with prophecies, they would be confirmed because the prophet would foretell a 
an event that would have to be confirmed. So you could tell if the if the prophet was genuine or not if the event that they prophesied came to pass. This seems to be the case in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. So, oh, looks like I cut a sentence off there. When, if an Old Testament prophet said something, their words needed to be evaluated to see if they came to pass. If they didn't, they were stoned as false prophets. So Moses said, as if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder, with that he tells you, to, comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we'd have to test the prophets. Likewise, a person claiming to receive divine revelation should be evaluated based upon if their prophecies come to pass. If they don't, they're a false prophet. Another cross-reference would be Jeremiah 28 with Hananiah. Jeremiah prophesies that Jerusalem should surrender themselves to Nebuchadnezzar because God has basically handed them over. And Hananiah basically rejects that prophecy and says what Jeremiah is saying is wrong and creates his own little prophecy. Then Jeremiah responds, well, because you decided to reject God's word and make up your own, you're going to die within a year. And it will be proven that everything that I prophesied comes to pass and what you've said is a lie. And Hananiah does end up dying. God doesn't tolerate false prophets. The next, in line with this gift, the next uh, gift that's mentioned is the, dis- the ability to distinguish between spirits. And again, multiple times throughout the Bible, it's noted that prophecy needs to be examined. We already looked at Deuteronomy 13, but also think of Matthew 24, 24, where Jesus says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And the assumption is the elect shouldn't be led astray. And so that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, a couple chapters later, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what's said. Just because a perfect person claims to be a prophet doesn't mean that you should automatically believe them. Weigh what's being said. And therefore it makes sense that God would bless the church with members who were gifted with the ability to discern whether a person was a true prophet or not. That's what this distinguishing of spirits refers to. People who have the ability to discern if it's a genuine prophecy. Next, we're almost to the end, the, ver- the, the gift of tongues. The word is glossa. And every time this word is used in Scripture, it refers to a known language, such as Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek or Latin. It's a known language. The only exception would be 1 Corinthians 13, later on, where Paul makes a series of hyperbolic statements. One of those hyperbolic statements is, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, and it's because of that, then some people have said, well, that's what tongues is. It's angelic language. But Paul is being hyperbolic, clearly hyperbolic, even as you look at the other language around that statement. 
So rather, this gift is referring to a known language, and that's clearly seen how it's used in the book of Acts. So going back to Pentecost, Acts 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They understood them. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Then it lists all the different languages and people groups. We hear, at the very end, verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. It's a known language. That's what it's being referred to. And this, of course, is why there should be the final gift, interpretation of tongues. And this just simply refers to the ability to hear that language that's being spoken and then interpret it as a translator would into another language. Now, of course, this would be particularly helpful to a person who is wanting to reach unreached people groups with the gospel, trying to reach people who didn't speak that language. And this is exactly what Jesus commanded the disciples to do. Go into all the world, all the nations, all the languages, all the people groups. But he says, before you do that, wait. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what the disciples did. So Jesus makes this command in the beginning of Acts, first few verses of Acts. And so they wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And when the Spirit comes, he comes with tongues of fire, symbolic tongues of fire over their head. And then they go out and speak in different languages. Acts 1, 4 through 5. Know what Jesus says. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the Holy Spirit was given to them. This, and he gives this gift so that they can fulfill the command that Jesus gave. But Jesus says, don't try and fulfill this command until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because when you get it, you can do it. And they did. And men from hundreds of different people groups hear the gospel. And the gospel spreads. And this is a necessary gift, this interpretation of tongues. If one who speaks in a foreign language, they would need an interpreter. Because if they didn't have a translator, nobody else would understand what's being said. They wouldn't understand it. And so if you're in a body of believers and somebody speaks in a foreign language and the point of being together as a church is to edify one another, you would want an interpretation of that. So that's why it's given. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, So with yourselves, if your tongue, you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you will be speaking into thin air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But I do not know the meaning of the language. If I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner and a speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 
Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he would be able to interpret it. So the rest of the body would be built up. Paul concludes with verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Paul again emphasizes the unity they have and where the source of these gifts are. They all have the same spirit. So even though one might seem more spiritual because they have a more miraculous gift. This does not mean that they're actually more spiritual or more important. If they do have some great spiritual power, it's not because of anything with them. It's because the spirit gave it to them. And again, it's not for them. It's for the church. And then Paul makes it clear that it's the spirit who apportions these gifts. One cannot choose to have a certain gift. One can't. It's not like pursuing a major in college. They can't just choose that that's what they're going to have. God gives it and he decides who gets what. Only the Spirit makes that choice. So, final question. Why don't we see many spiritual gifts being exercised today? Especially the ones that are listed here. Well, it could be that we simply don't have a need for these gifts. So God doesn't give them to us. God knows what our needs are. These are not the needs that we have. So he chooses to gift us differently than he did the church of Corinth. But I think it could also be um, part of the result of the way church is conceived of today. The way church is exercised, I think, prohibits the ministry of all the gifts. Why do I say that? Well, it's very easy for people to think in terms of uh, the church, in terms of the pastor's ministry. We come to hear what the preacher is going to say. Or what the worship band is singing. Um, Rather than, I go to church because I have a role to play within the church body. And if I don't, the church body is hurt by it. We tend to be very focused on just the leadership. Another thing that I think we struggle with is we tend to focus on programs. So the work of ministry is about, you know, uh, a worship ministry or uh, being ushers or... You know, an Awana class or something. And those aren't bad, but when we think of ministry in terms of programs, we, the gifts play no part in that at all. In fact, the individuals are, really are unimportant. What's important is how well is that program run. So you don't need the Spirit's help as long as it's run well. So when people ask, what, I, what do I do if it... When a person asks, what do I do? It tends to be in view of a program or some particular role within the church. A pragmatic role. It's a focus on physical versus spiritual needs. Instead, I think what we should ask is, how do I love the other members of the body of Christ? How do I love them? Because that's eventually where Paul's going to get, right? How do I desire to love the other members and then pray for God to work powerfully through your ministry? What are the burdens that you have? What is it that you want to see happen within the church? Pursue that. Don't look for a ministry in order for you to use that gift. You don't need a ministry. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't need a piece of paper or a structure. You don't need a building. You have the Spirit. And then love the other members with 
that desire that you have. And I think when we learn to function that way, which is very, you know, countercultural, we will really learn to treasure and value the whole member, all the members of the body of Christ, not just the few that have, you know, a more upfront ministry. See, most people, I think, don't recognize their individual importance to the rest of the body. And so this prevents even the gifts that they have from even being thought about. So people often aren't even thinking about, I have a responsibility to minister this gift. They're just thinking, I just need to show up. But that's not true. As every member learns of their responsibility to the body, to love it and see it built up, more spiritual gifts will be manifested in their ministry. You all, if you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. So if it's not being exercised, the question you have to ask is, why not? And maybe it is. But if it is, utilize it all the more or pray for it. God, help me, help give me power. Just as you pray for me when I preach or I teach, God, help him. Help him make his word clear. Help him make it applicable. Help us to understand and give us unity based upon this word and our understanding. As you pray for me, pray the same thing for yourself. Pray the same thing for the people sitting next to you. And as we all minister these gifts to one another, think about how exponentially powerful the church will be. It's a beautiful picture. But that's how it's designed. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, help us to be such a church. Help us to see the power at work within each individual in the body of Christ. And help us to think not just in terms of institutions, but in terms of the power of you within us, that we would be able to minister to the weak better, that we'd be able to, to, to minister uh, mercy better and be able to minister um, uh, administration better or healing, if you choose, better. Lord, whatever our needs are, God, help us to see you work in the body as a whole and help us to see as individuals what it is that you desire us to do. Help us to see the burdens and the passions that you've put up in our life. And I pray that in the process, we would truly become a church driven by love, driven by devotion to one another and not consumed with the individualism that surrounds us and in the world that we live in. We ask these things in your name. Amen.